Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. Eventually, management will ask you to evaluate third-party integrations for your software. Whether it's for authentication, sending email, or other functionality, there are times when it makes more sense to use third-party software instead of building it yourself. However, a lot of developers are not used to having to do this sort of thing, which can make it rather difficult. In this episode, we'll discuss some things you need to consider when evaluating third-party integrations to provide additional services for your applications. We're primarily orienting this discussion around developer needs, but in the aftercast, we'll talk about things managers need to consider regarding integrations, along with some potential pitfalls. But before we get started, Will, what have you been integrating this week? Well, I don't know about integrating things. But I, you know, I'm doing the 12 week year structure for kind of managing my goals and stuff. And right now it's the odds of March and the way that I structured my stuff, I have 10 days left in the first quarter, you know, cause then you, you do like 12 weeks and you got a week of like planning slash kind of deloading and then you go right back to it and uh, it worked out pretty well. But there is a wad of tasks in there that I still have to fix. Like I've got like another 22 items on the list and they're all stuff that I dread that I've been putting off since January. <laughs> so I've got to do that a little bit differently next time because I'm, I'm looking at it and it's all stuff like go through these boxes, clean it out, get all the stuff that you want to keep and get rid of the rest. You know, organize this. A garage full of those boxes and a closet behind me full of those boxes. Yeah, and I'm just taking like one or two little areas, but that is the stuff that has lasted until the end of the quarter. And so I got to think about that next quarter and try to figure out how to not do this to myself again, because I don't want to do all that all at once. I want it to be kind of scattered. So that's kind of where things are right now. I'm just trying to roll up stuff. Did pretty well on hitting my personal goals for the quarter. So some slight exceptions. How about you? Hmm. I, uh, I need to start doing quarterly goals like that. I tend to think more in terms of semesters just because of the extensive amount of school that I've had. I also have noticed the last few days, I really need to get a haircut. I'm not trying to grow it back out. So that's uh, that needs to come up. I got a new camera, Canon 5D Mark IV. I think I mentioned it in the April 1st episode that it had come in and I was charging it. I don't know if it was in the episode or in the aftercast I mentioned it, but yeah. So it's a full-on professional DSLR camera that I'm using for photography and videography. Used it a couple of times already. I took it to... We had a game night for the worship team last week. I took it to that. And then Saturday, uh, one of the kids at church was having a birthday party. And I just showed up with the camera and I asked her mom, I was like, hey, is it all right if I... Uh, take photos for you guys. She's like, thank you. I forgot to ask someone to take photos. This is so awesome. So I got to uh, 
got to be a photographer for uh, for that event, which was a lot of fun. We we had a blast with it, and so then we used it for filming the video announcements at church on Monday. So really cool. But uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun learning to shoot uh, full frame. So my previous camera was a crop sensor, so it didn't get the full full use of the lens. So it's sort of changing the way that I use my lenses because now I've got the whole scene in them and the the full frame sensor on the camera. So also in other camera news, I got a new webcam too. Finally. Yeah. Well, don't expect it to last long. I'm not happy with the cord being as short as it is. So I'm not, uh, at least I'm not overexposed on the call. The old camera just like was bright, bright. A USB, I'm assuming it is. You can get extension cables for USB. Yeah, but I mean, I just don't want to do like a extension into a hub, into a KVM. Yeah, that might be a little weird. Yeah, I just like I've got extension cables, but it's just overkill, I think. Yeah, does your KVM work with your USB hub? Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's a 3.0 hub. Huh. I may have to... Uh... That could really solve some things for me. Yeah. Yeah. I got 3.0. It's a 3.0 hub and a 3.0 KVM. You got to go pay a little bit extra for the the USB 3.0. But uh, yeah, it, it makes it work. So I do have the, the Scarlet plugged directly into the KVM because I wanted that to go directly through. But And then keyboard and mouse are plugged into the keyboard and mouse plugs on the KVM. Yeah. That's what I've got. And I've only got one plug on the KVM for USB otherwise. And that's where the camera goes. I could actually use my Scarlet for my work microphone. Like there's never any kind of connection issue, power issue. Yeah. Nothing versus the gaming headset that I have. That that might be well worth it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> the thing is, I've got two plugs on the KVM. So I didn't try the Scarlet. I was concerned about signal degradation on the audio going from... Yeah, that's true. For the Scarlet. But uh, yeah, for um, so I just have it going straight into the the KVM. So it works. It gets the job done, I suppose. Saving money is hard, especially when your friends tell you about new tricks you can do with the devices you have. Well, I mean, if it's the devices you have, it shouldn't be a problem saving money. It's when you need to buy new devices. There is that. <laughs> Although I, I've noticed if I mess with devices, there tends to be a little bit of magic smoke on occasion too. So I'm not necessarily sure that it's always free. True that, true that. Lucas Casadas is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And just like us here at Complete Developer Podcast, his goal is to help you not only establish a real plan, but to act on that plan so that you can create the best version of your own life. Is investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances. Now, with the help of Level Up, the compounding impact of making better financial decisions is going to easily pay for itself. Level Up also has a unique pricing model that will help you no matter where you are in your financial journey. Best of all, Lucas is a fiduciary for his clients. What that means is he's not trying to sell you a product. He's there to help guide you to a better financial situation. 
And you can catch his podcast, Techie Personal Finance Bootcamp, where he covers financial topics that you probably are dealing with. He also interviews other IT professionals who share how they navigated their own careers. And he has more written material, if that's your thing as well. That's at uh, levelupfinancialplanning.com. Obviously, I guess audio is probably your, your jam as well if you're on here. <laughs> I realized that as I was saying it, I'm like, that? <laughs> oh, but that was good. That was good. Yeah. Hey, so uh, your boss asked you to evaluate third-party software for performing certain tasks within your platform. And throughout the episode, we're going to talk about email providers, basically because just about everyone has to evaluate those at some point. They're the most common thing that we all deal with. All of us have to send some type of email here or there. And I did it two weeks ago. Yeah, so that's, that's the other reason. While a lot of developers will see the feature set offered by a particular party integration and think, hey, I can write that in a weekend, you can't. When a company sells software as a service, software is not the only or probably even the primary thing that they're providing. While the software implementation is important, a lot of other issues come into play, such as system stability, ease of integration, licensing, cost, restrictions around use, so forth. In the more specific case of something like email providers, issues like compliance with legal regulations, rate limiting, monitoring, and content restrictions can also apply. Basically, this stuff is never really as simple as you think, and you might be able to write something to do basic stuff, but you can't write something that is going to provide the needs for your company at an enterprise level in a weekend. Right. Just to give you an example, evaluating uh, email providers, I've done this probably, I don't know, eight times in my career. And every single time we've done it well, it's taken a week. Mm -hmm. And usually multiple people like really digging in. Now, obviously that's, it's a little different now because it's kind of commoditized, but that is a pretty good goal. It takes a chunk of time. And if you're not taking the chunk of time, you're going to pay for not doing so later. So when you decide to integrate your software with a third party, it really is a long-term decision. You're marrying your software to somebody else's code. Not only is it hard to switch providers for most functionality, but unless the required functionality isn't particularly important, it will greatly impact the future development of the application, even if you don't switch. A great integration can really help you grow quickly, but a bad one can absolutely destroy your software, make it unusable, make it where you're basically painted into a corner when you're trying to work. No pressure though, right? Regardless, it can be a lot of actual pressure to really put on a developer. It's not all bad. While developers are often tasked with evaluating third-party providers for software, the decision on which one to actually buy is usually still left to management. Your job is just to make sure that they have the information they need to make an informed decision. So in this episode, we're going to discuss some of the things that you need to consider when you are evaluating third-party software integrations. We intentionally omitted the most obvious criteria that most people look at when evaluating third-party software. That is the price. While this should be included when explaining the relative merits of various platforms, 
probably shouldn't be considered when comparing integrations from a development perspective. Developers are notorious about comparing on price and forgetting what development labor costs. Yeah. And the other thing we ran into basically every single time I've done this is at the volume that a typical enterprise does stuff, it's probably not a price that's listed on a website. You probably have to call and talk to a human being and you have an enterprise contract negotiation and a whole bunch of other stuff that you don't want to be in the middle of because it's boring. Mm-hmm. Been there, done that, did well at it. Not, uh, I guess I did tell people about it just now, but otherwise I wouldn't. I didn't enjoy it. OMG. All right. Well, the first thing that you need to take into consideration is how accessible and usable are their docs? Oh my goodness, yes. So if you Google the answer for a question where that isn't like an obvious answer, can you find it? While their documentation may or may not be complete, most developers will rely on search engines in order to find results. This means that if their documentation is perfect, but is not adequately indexed by Google, for example, then it's not really suitable. Yeah, I mean, this comes down to developer behavior, right? Like I had to integrate a third-party software package at a previous gig, and their docs were pretty good. However, they were not indexing any of their pages, basically in their documentation knowledge base. It was a weird system. And so you couldn't do a Google search to find stuff. You had to drill down into the docs and try to find the right place for the thing. And it was, it was very good directions once you got there, but it was completely unusable by an average developer. And you'd burn a lot of time doing what a computer could do for you. Another thing that you learn in software development over time is that the idea of RTFM, read the effing manual, does not work at scale. Most developers, including yourself, when you're under stress, will not actually read the manual. Instead, we look for an indexed, easy solution to a problem. If the provider can't provide one, then they aren't suitable, right? Because like, if you're in an emergency situation, you do not want to be trying to go through their knowledge base and drill down and try to figure out how they did their content structure so you can find something. Like, you need a fix yesterday. Uh, Some companies will also hide their documentation and require a login to view it. In general, if the problem that you are trying to solve is pretty straightforward, yeah, want to avoid these. It's just an additional barrier to entry for working with their software. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I worked with a few that, that did that. And for some functionality, it's complex enough or there's maybe some security res- you know, constraints. That's what I was um, thinking. Or like you have your private. A, a great example of this is if you've got some of them will have like a swagger interface that you can log into. Yeah. And then it does stuff as you and you can mm-hmm. actually see it right there. So that's actually better than not having you know the login because I can actually yeah. test against the system. But you have to think about what happens when you add a developer to your team or when one leaves. Right. Like what happens if the last person that messed with this thing left and you can't log into this system now that you're relying on? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's it's frustrating, especially like if you've got only so many accounts per company. Yeah, um, that's something I also kind of watch for. I didn't put it in here, but see how they scale the developer accounts. Yeah. Um, There are some companies that are like, oh, you've got five developers. We're going to charge you per developer. 
Well, what happens is people share one account. Mm -hmm. And when somebody screws up that account, you're dead in the water. It should scale with something that actually provides value for additional users, not just, oh, you know, we're going to restrict how many devs can touch this thing. You should also, when you're looking at the documentation, make sure that it's actually current. A lot of people have been burned, myself included, by documentation that is a version or two out of date, right? Because the devs Mm -hmm. push something out and their knowledge base team hasn't caught up yet or they don't even have anybody. And it's like, that's great, but none of this code compiles now. And I don't know where you moved this. It's especially great when they move namespaces and slightly change names of stuff. And then nothing compiles and it's just, you're snipe hunting the whole time, trying to find something Mm -hmm. to tell you what to do. Um, If you can't find documentation on the version that you are expected to use, that's the same as a complete lack of documentation because it is. It's actually a little bit worse because you'll be led down a wrong path first. Yeah. The next thing to consider is what is their support like? Documentation really does help a lot, but you really shouldn't count on it exclusively. Not every problem with any software packages easily known or quickly resolved. You may have to get in touch with the human who can dig into the problem for you or point you to documentation that uh, you haven't found yet. This is true even beyond working with integrations. I had this issue today where I was on a website trying to find some information that should have been obvious, but I had to actually get on a chat with the person and be like, hey, I can't find this. And this is like a key part of your business. And she's like, oh, yeah, you go through, there's like eight steps to drill down to get to that information. Like that should be like front and center, front page. But yeah. Yeah. You should really spend some time evaluating whether or not you can actually get a hold of a human being at the expected level of expenditure for your application. You know, it isn't reasonable to expect to get live support from a human being for five bucks a month, but it is reasonable to expect to be able to do so when you're paying hundreds or thousands of dollars a month. You should also look into their support guarantees. How long is the typical turnaround for getting a response from support? While support can't usually guarantee a solution to a problem in a certain amount of time, they can and should guarantee a response. This response will let you determine what to do if a problem occurs. Yeah, like on our, uh, we call it battle axe, but the dev support, when it like gets escalated up to us, we take turns, but we do try to respond immediately, even if it's, hey, let's get on a call in the morning or let's schedule something for the work week. It's still an, um, at least a response saying, hey, we got this. I had a third-party .NET component that was based in Central Europe. And I would send them an email with a question. And their devs, I think, maybe didn't speak English or didn't speak good English. And so it would go through the support tiers. And then it would go to the devs, and they would try to work a way through it. Now, they, they would give you an answer, right? And it actually fixed the problem. But it might be two weeks, and you never knew whether you're support ticket went anywhere or not. And when you're sitting there waiting with your boss breathing down your neck, that's bad. 
And I did some very, very hacky things to get around some problems that they had that I subsequently had to tear back out of the app when the actual fix came in. So you don't want to do that because that's expensive. You know, in fact, you really shouldn't rely on development's ability to figure stuff out when a problem occurs. This is actually the same vendor, so I'll go ahead and tell the story. You might be able to figure things out, but the response may not be optimal. In my case, I had to dig through obfuscated, uh, minified JavaScript and basically figure out like the names of these functions you know, that are crushed down to be like three characters or whatever and what you're passing and how to structure it so that I could do things that I wasn't really supposed to do that way. Uh, I remember this is where yeah. the, the term all JavaScript is open source if you believe enough came from. Right, right. <laughs> I would highly suggest that you not actually test that one. The next thing you need to evaluate is try to figure out how good their actual development processes are. Now, you're not going to be able to see these for the most part unless there are development blogs or something like that, but you can see the knockoff effects of those. You basically want an overall feel for how well their organization can respond to issues, feature requests, and questions basically by looking at how quick they can roll out a new version, those kind of things. Bear in mind that if your users have a problem with their integration, the expected response time of a fix is whichever is worse between organizations. So figure out if that will be acceptable by figuring out how quickly they solve issues. Actually, I would say how slowly they solve issues. Yeah, although there's some of them that are really fast now. Well, what, what I meant is you want to base it on their slowest response time, not their fastest. Right. And like if you've got an SLA with your users that, hey, we'll fix, which this is dumb, we'll fix any issue you have within a day. Um, unless, <laughs> you know, your software is like 20 years old and you don't change anything ever and it's mm-hmm. hosted on your servers that you fully control. That's a bad idea, but people make those kind of promises. Well, if you have an SLA like that and this third party integration takes a week to respond with a fix. You just busted your SLA and your users do not care that it is a third party. You may have something in the contract that says, oh, they, you know, we understand that you know, there's third parties. They don't care. They are going to hold it against you. Mm-hmm. And your sales guy and your boss don't care either. Well, you can really only learn this through experience. You'll kind of start to notice smells, I guess is the best way to put it. It's kind of like code smells. It's like, yeah, I get the feeling their support is not great because, you know, I'm looking through their forums, for instance, and I see questions that are three years old that are unanswered, right? Or questions that are not really answered, but the person that was asking them just went away because they went to a different vendor. Like, there's lots of little tells like that that you will see. You know, user forums are a great way to do that. uh, As far as determining how quickly a company will solve simple issues, because they usually have a date in there if they don't have a date then you have to assume it's 10 years that's fair yeah because they're hiding it for a reason i've seen that one be done a few times too doesn't work should also look at how frequently they release software updates as well as their ability to quickly release patches for rising issues when you're really determining the quality of their organization then we'll uh Quotes Metallica here, nothing else matters. That's right. Metallica, right? I think so. I think so, yeah. Pretty sure. My brain is not really on today. 
Yeah, I'll have to look it up. But the, <laughs> you are outsourcing because you're more worried about results than implementation. You need to behave like you, that's the key thing. If they can't turn stuff around quickly, if you have a problem, you're, you know, it's on you now. Next, uh, when evaluating for developers, look and see if their programming model is familiar or understandable to your team. When you integrate with a third-party service, it can be really tempting to choose an implementation that has the best features or the lowest price or whatever. While that is often a consideration, especially at the management level, it really, really cannot be the only one. In particular, if your development team cannot reason about the software, the price is not going to be the problem. Yeah, that makes sense. You need to look at how to integrate with their system and see whether it matches the way that you currently do things. That's really key because I ran into this integrating with the file upload system that required we use SOAP. And it's like, okay, so we build in .NET Core, which doesn't have SOAP. And I actually talked with their dev team. And they're like, yeah, we have no, no plans to ever go away from SOAP. And I'm like, the entire world is going away from it. Like, can I fax you a request? Yeah. Like, because <laughs> like, that's easy. Microsoft, <laughs> Microsoft isn't going to even be supporting it in it, the new new .NETs. I'm like, I, I don't know how anyone's going to even work with your your system because they're not going to be able to. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be a way, but it'll be awful. Yeah, and I I don't think this was their primary breadwinner. Yeah, if it's the one I'm thinking of, I know it isn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so it was like. They just didn't care. They're like, all right, well, when that happens, we can stop working on this. Yay. I don't know if that was the case, but it might have been because they were like, yeah, we're not going to do that. So, well, I mean, I had one where, you know, management liked it and, you know, it was a really neat component, but it was built for Angular. And I was doing web forms. Like that's what our whole team was doing. We had no Angular expertise on the team that was anywhere close to current. And, oh, well, you can just put it in this page. It's like, yes, but every time the page posts back, this big, heavy component comes down again Mm -hmm. and has to reload and does a bunch of callbacks and web sockets and stuff all over the place. Like, this does not work with our programming model. And you're going to want to really, really watch that because that's something you want to filter a component out and don't even let management see it if that's going on. Because... Mm -hmm you will never get out from under trying to fix the problems that something like that causes. You know, you should also look for things like adherence to web standards. You don't want to integrate with a software package whose REST implementation uses POST where GITs are more appropriate. If it uh, doesn't confuse you, it'll confuse the next developer. That is very, very true. I've seen that. You also don't want them using, like I said, Soap when no one else is doing it. Everyone else is using like rest or whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, like if you've already moved on to like GraphQL, somebody using soap is awful. But, you know, going back to the whole rest thing, I've seen cases where companies had like an endpoint that took a get and changed data. And it's like that's bad enough, but like they weren't taking into account like how get requests get cached. 
And so, you know, you're getting the same result you got last time when it should have changed because they're not using the calling semantics correctly. So like watch for those kind of things. Cause there are some companies that are still out there doing that. Yeah. I get what they're thinking. Then they're just not, like you said, they're not thinking about the, the calling semantics and stuff like that. Cause I've, when I was a junior, I would have made that same mistake, not having experienced it yet. And I've seen others make that mistake. And I'm like, nope, I've made that mistake. Um, it's been a while. Yeah, it's like these rules are here for a reason and like here's the reason for that one. A lot of times that's the the conversation that gets had. So the next thing that you need to consider is how they account for stability issues. No software out there is perfect. I hate to burst anybody's bubble. I'm assuming, however, that bubble has probably been burst for you already. Uh, if you've listened to this podcast ever, or written code ever, uh, you understand that software is not ever going to be perfect. Whether that software is hosted on the cloud or on-premise, something is eventually going to go wrong. And it's going to cause the software to stop working for a while, whatever you're integrating with or your own software. While downtime may be acceptable in some instances, when you lose functionality or data, that is unacceptable now. Like You will have problems from users if you do that yeah if you plan to integrate with other software and they use a webhook to send data back to you how often do they retry and over what amount of time if a webhook fails do you have a means of getting the data some other way right like looking at email service providers you know we saw you know there were some that were like we will do an incremental back off over an eight hour period Mm-hmm. and we'll send stuff to your webhook. If it fails past then, you don't have any way to get it. It's like, well, what happens when AWS has some kind of crazy major outage and there's something that we forgot to put in multiple locations for some reason, you know, infrastructure screwed up or whatever. Like our data is just lost now. If it is over a longer period, we saw some of them do that would try like 100 times over a period of a week or something. Like if you're down for a week, like everything's busted. So like that's long enough that you're probably going to be okay, but you really have to kind of, you have to look at this, especially at the enterprise level, because stuff is going to have downtime. You are going to at the very least redeploy and things are not going to work. Now you can kind of, there are ways around this and we'll talk about that here in a minute. Basically, whenever you are integrating with a third party, you are introducing a additional source of truth into your app. Because of this, you have to have a way to keep your data updated so that your primary system can still be trusted, right? Like you don't want to be calling out to them for all the things. You probably want to have it local so that you're not dependent on another network call because latency and bandwidth restrictions and their downtime and everything else. You just don't want to do that. If an integration partner makes it impossible or difficult to recover from an outage, they're best avoided because you are going to have issues at some point. Yeah. While you can mitigate a lot of these issues with infrastructure on your side, if a vendor doesn't also take these issues into account, then your implementation will have to be considerably more robust in order to achieve just a baseline of stability. Right. And you probably don't want this on you because the reason you're outsourcing is because you don't want to have to do that. That's probably the the big reason versus the functionality that they're actually providing. 
So next, what is the testing landscape? In addition to regular development use, your QA team is likely to also be required to do at least some testing with the platform. So you need to consider how well it works for them. And this is something developers almost always forget until the last. In particular, you're going to need things like segregated QA environments, right? Like they need a place where they can do stuff and the developers don't mess them up and they don't mess up the developers and nobody messes up production. I've seen environments set up where they're like, well, you can get a separate account if you need one for QA and pay for a separate QA account, which it might be reasonable depending on what you're doing. But I've also seen that get kind of ridiculous where it's like, oh, we're going to ding you for five bucks a month and you got to keep all these separate credentials and go through all this other crap. I don't want that. You know, I want to have a sandbox of some sort for my QA people. I'm also going to want the ability to trigger error codes with certain requests, right? Like if there's something that's like a, you know, the equivalent of a file not found, my QA person needs to be able to build a request that always generates that so that they can test how my app handles that in the integration point, right? Because I, I don't want stuff to just break because something happened. They also want the ability to look things up in a dashboard without API calls to determine what happened because nobody builds integration point dashboards before they build the integration. And you need those dashboards when you're building the integration. The perfect integration partner for a development team can be kind of abysmal for a QA team. You might be tempted to let this slide, but if you do... Over time, it's going to become more of a headache than it's worth. You know, stuff can be really, really easy for the dev team. But if QA cannot do automated testing on it, your throughput is going to stall based on what QA has to do to test. You got to remember that regression testing is a huge part of QA's job, or at least I hope it is. Uh, there are some organizations that that's doubtful that that's the case. Some of them make operating systems. You know, when you have two disparate pieces of software changing separately, and by the way, the communication channel on which they live and the hardware that they live on also changes, there is a huge opportunity for regressions. And you have to make it as easy as possible for your QA team to do regression testing in an automated fashion, or they will do it in a manual fashion and take an age. So next, what are the restrictions on usage? You should also carefully consider what kind of limits are placed on your integration with another software package. This can vary a lot depending on why you need the integration. But a great example of this is the case of an email server provider. So like email providers will want to limit the volume of the email you send as well as the content of the emails. Right. So for instance, I've worked for a company that is religious in nature and some of the email service providers have clauses in their contracts for limiting things, you know, that you want to limit, right? Like you don't want hate speech and stuff going on, but they're not well-defined. And so you have to look at this as, okay, is this a risk that somebody who's not of this religious group is now going to try to tell this religious group what they can and can't say or can and can't think. And, you know, bear in mind, it's not, it's not like our organization, you know, it's a client and you don't want that kind of pressure in there. So you got to watch for that sort of stuff. And there's things that can be slightly hot button issues that you probably haven't thought of, right? Like you might have a, an email service provider that up and decides that, hey, we're not going to let you send out emails that 
suggest tourism to certain countries because suddenly there's something going on. Uh, not that we haven't seen that lately. Another thing could be if you're like a government contractor or you're working with government money or you are working for a government entity who owns the service provider because that can be an issue too. Yeah, especially if it goes out of state or out of country or yeah, something like that. There's also regulatory stuff. You may be restricted in how you use the data that you get from an external service. Uh, this is really true of like financial data, you know, personally identifiable data, those kind of things. When you start hitting the edge of that, you get legal involved, period. Yeah. You do not make that decision as a developer. Rate limiting is another issue. You need to determine whether the integration point can deal with the volume of data that you're sending. A lot of integration partners will rate limit to make sure that one client doesn't disrupt things for everyone else, which is fair and a good practice, but it's not the best if you're on the wrong side of that. So you need to know where that is. Yeah. And the fix for that, uh, if you do get rate limited, usually involves lots of pictures of dead presidents on green paper. That usually overcomes a rate limit. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Just so you know. But your management may not like that too much. So finally, there are some considerations you need to have around monitoring of the integration point. You should determine what level of monitoring, logging, you know, those kind of things is available from an integration partner without the requirement of writing code to be able to get to it. You know, it's great if they have an API for this stuff, but you're not going to start by using the API. And more than likely, that is not a business feature that you're going to surface anywhere early on. It may be years in before you do that. So you can't count on it being there. No. And you do not want to be using Postman to try to figure stuff out on the fly. Oh, no, I've never done that before. Neither have I. I have this year. (laughs) I have not done that. Actually, I haven't done that since I, I started my new job. So it's been almost a full year, full cal- uh, like full calendar year since I have, uh, I, have, I have not done that. Now, this means that you should start out with a dashboard. You'll likely need this for showcasing things to management, as well as QA debugging task. So might as well go ahead and build it. Uh, it should be as simple as possible to determine whether your requests are going through your system or not without writing code. Yeah, so instead of build, it needs to be in there when you buy. Yeah. Um, You may have to add to it anyway, but have a baseline. I'm just so used to building everything. I know. (laughs) And and that's a developer thing that we all have to watch, right? Because we're like, well, I can can do it. But yeah, you you can, you know, you can make your own, you know, iron mine for your hammer factory factory, but like you maybe don't want to do that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. You should also really pay close attention to how quickly the dashboard system updates. You may see dashboards out there that update like daily or Mm -hmm. after several hours in some circumstances, Uh, depending on what they're doing. That may be, hey, that's when they actually have something to show. But it can be really, really annoying for debugging a problem that just occurred in dev if you're having to wait like overnight because there's some batch process that kicks off and it updates. And that's really scary when it happens in production. You should also pay attention to dashboards that show application stability and availability. You will want these to be quality, especially when you have inevitable outages. Yeah, there's nothing worse than going, 
is there stuff down or did I just do something stupid and not being able to tell? Oh, that's the worst. Because then you just have to assume you did something stupid. Oh, always. Always assume it's you. Yeah. If you picked a provider that does not have one of these dashboards, you did. You screwed up. You trusted them. So guys, developers are often tasked with evaluating potential software integration partners for a variety of different things in their apps. While the final decision is probably still left up to management, developers still need to be able to make a realistic assessment of any third party they're working with while avoiding getting too hung up on the actual technology. There are a lot of different things that you need to consider when you use a third-party service as part of your application, and these considerations go far beyond simply determining if the programming side of things will be easy to implement. That pretty much wraps us up. Beach. what do you have this week for us for Tricks of the Trade? So when you're evaluating software to use at your company, you want to be very picky in the process. You know, we, we've talked about a lot of things that you want to consider there. However, remember that it was developers like you who wrote it, and they may have close attachments to their code. We've talked about not getting too attached to your code, but not everybody listens to this podcast. We're working on that. So while you're going to be honest with your boss and straightforward, watch what you say publicly or possibly in front in calls or in front of people from that third party. Just remember you don't always write the best code all the time, unless you're Will. I mean, he does, but you know, we can't all be perfect like him. Uh, I think you should have seen some stuff from today. Um, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't help it, man. I couldn't help yeah. it on you over there. Uh, no, no. Um, just remember that, like, don't, and if you do buy something and it does have a problem, remember there are people too. Just take that into consideration when you're doing this. Like, you don't want someone yelling at you. And so you get a lot further in those conversations by not being that way. So yeah, I'll also tell you one thing I've had really good luck with, and this is a really quick one, is when you see something really good and it works well, praise them. Yeah, that's very important. That because not only does important. that make them feel better, because they probably don't get a lot of that, but when they're researching what to do next, they will call you. Yeah. Yeah. Because you you told them something good. Uh, yeah, I like and that. You that take off really their good. employees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like it. I like it. All right. That's pretty much all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash completedeveloperpodcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at completedevpod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.